Welcome back to One Step Ahead. This is Mike Wheeler, co-host with Kim Leary. Hi, Kim. Hi, Mike. How's it going? It's going well. This is the end of the week. I've been rather scattered, but surprisingly, a bunch of things got done, and I'm looking forward to a weekend where I can catch my breath a little bit. How about for you? It's been a really busy but wonderful week. I launched a new class and leading teams over at the Kennedy School, and I'm really excited about our guest today who is going to help us to think about what it means to really be in the moment, because when you're facing a class for the first time, that's a moment, as you know very well. It is, isn't it? Um, and it's one of those things that's both exciting and a little bit, uh, okay, here we go. How many people are in your leadership course? There are 40 students at the So Kennedy there are School. more of them than there are of you. There are more of them than there are. <laughs> so where, where the class goes and where the course goes for all of the planning, and I did a lot, is a bit of an improvisation. And yes. our guest today, Lakshmi Balachandra, um, knows a lot about that, having actually been a professional improv performer for a number of years. And then it has informed a lot of her teaching and, um, and her research. So let's invite Lakshmi in here. Kim, it's great that we're sitting down here with Lakshmi Balachandra, uh, who used to work with me for some time, and he, you've known through various research conferences and so forth. That's right. I think we even co-authored a paper some time back. On that. So, Lakshmi, welcome to One Step Ahead. Thank you. It's really fun to be here. There are lots of things we could talk about. Uh, one that is, I think, a shared interest of Kim and me, but a much deeper experience for you is improv. And I understand you've got the University of Chicago behind you. You've got an MIT degree. You've got a doctorate and so forth. But let's be out with it. You also, for a number of years, did improv comedy. I did. You I did. did. You did. I yeah, know. No. True confession time, right? <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is um, you've taught me a fair amount about that. I think about agile negotiation, Kim. Well, you cannot script it. You can't because there are other people at the table who have their own ideas about what we're talking about, how to talk about it. You do adaptive leadership. When we refer to improv comedy, people might think we've kind of gone off the reservation. But, but all the elements of improv, as I imagine you'll share with us soon, are so at the heart of what it means to teach good practice in negotiation and to open people up to leadership. You know, when we teach adaptive leadership at the Kennedy School, we use something called case in point, where the instructor is improvising, if you will, with the class, and presence and being connected in the moment is absolutely essential to the teaching, much more than any of the articles, if the truth be told, that are on the syllabus. So, Lakshmi, you've taught a bunch of things at Babson, including negotiation. Mm -hmm. Whether you refer to that or other topics, mm -hmm. how does your understanding and experience in improv find its way into what you teach? Uh, great question. And it's, um, it's, frankly, it's a true story in that I had done improv comedy professionally in California, so I took lessons at the Groundlings Theater in Los Angeles, but I was living in San Diego, and so the commute to L.A. was was difficult. You know, you can imagine back then, but you now traffic is impossible. So I found a professional group in San Diego, and I auditioned, and I got in. 
So all of a sudden, I was a professional improv comic. And I should caveat that because that was by night. (laughs) By day at that point, I was actually working in private equity. So (laughs) I was a private equity investment banker and rehearsing improv comedy at night. And then I moved back to Boston after working in private equity, after living in San Diego. And I worked in venture capital here in Boston. And then I went to business school at MIT. This is the usual trajectory. Right, exactly. Yes, I've heard this story a million times. I know, it sounds ridiculous now, but I'm like, this is what I did. But the point being, I couldn't find an improv group when I was in Boston, so this is a side note. I started doing stand-up comedy, which is a totally different game, but I'm not going to talk about that now. But anyway, I got to MIT, and my first year as an MBA... They have a required class at MIT, which you may not remember, Mike, but it was called Communication for Managers. I don't know if they still have it, and if they're listening, I hope they don't mind that I'm saying this, Um, because the class that they made us take was, frankly, it was not Communication for Managers. It was Communication for non-managers, for entry level, for people that don't know anything about business. It was taught at such a basic level that I found it really strange because here I am at this top-notch business school and they're teaching down to us in terms of communication, which seems really important in business. Meanwhile, I was taking derivatives and things in my economics class. So, you know, the disparity in what they thought we could do was astounding. So I mentioned one day in class, because it occurred to me, that I had used my improv comedy training, and it had been far more useful for me in my business career than anything they were teaching me there in this communications for managers class. And so I didn't think anything of it, except I had two of my classmates were McKinsey consultants, and they were going back to McKinsey after they finished uh, the business degree. And so they came up to me after class, and they said, hey, Lakshmi, you know that improv stuff you mentioned? That sounds really interesting. And it sounds like it could be really useful for us when we go back and we're more client-facing when we're basically promoted. And so they said, would you teach us it? I said, that sounds interesting. Yeah, maybe maybe I should put together a class. So I ended up, um, I taught a little module for a creativity professor at MIT. And I taught it pretty well. So I ended up putting together a class on leadership around improv comedy and I, taught it at MIT, and then I ended up being hired by MIT, and I, I taught it there for 10 years. Wow. And, yeah, <laughs> I taught it. At, it's still there. It's being taught by an improv actor now, uh, Improvisation for Leadership. And the course was all around teaching the basics of improv to business students with the notion that there are some key communication and in-the-moment skills that can be extremely relevant for business situations. Can, can you give us a few Absolutely. of them? And obviously, we're not going to cover the waterfront right. on it. Yep. A few of them, and then we might dive into yep. one in particular. This all was prompted by your realization that what seemed to be light years away, your improv training and your exactly. uh, work in private equity, yeah. there actually was a connection. Yeah. So, so what is it that you were able to do better in business yeah. communication yeah. It's so funny you say that because now as a business school professor, 
I still hear it from students that one of the biggest challenges, and this is why I think negotiation is such an important topic in every school, is the idea that it's really hard to manage people, right? It's really tough to manage people. It's really hard to work with people. It's the people part of it. It's the people yes. part of it. Yeah. So I think what improv particularly helped me personally and what I teach now I think it really helps to work with other people because the skills that you can train in are tangible and useful when you're in a group situation or an interpersonal moment. Things like, you know, with improv, you are trained to listen. You are trained to listen on a level that isn't what the typical conversation may have you do, right? And in fact, they're doing studies now, right, of people when they have their cell phone out like how that changes the attention of a conversation, of how people, whether they're actually paying attention or not. And so we have so many distractions around. For people to focus and get engaged in a conversation is really hard to learn to do, and improv comedy forces you to do that. Kim, can I underscore that? And I'm interested, Kim, from your clinical work, you know, how this comes in as well. Um, when you talk about a different level, this isn't just active listening. If I hear you correctly, Lakshmi, what you'd like me to do is X, Y, and Z. It's not just putting the cell phone down. It's turning off the chatter in your own head, right? Exactly. Not in other words, you're not thinking about what I'm going to say next, what if I do this, what if I do You're actually there and present, mm -hmm. which if you're on stage or if it's an important negotiation isn't necessarily the easiest state to achieve. So, so how do improv people do that? How do you get in that thing where you're not worried about whether you're going to be funny or not, you're just listening hard to what's unfolding in the moment? Yeah, and in fact, you can't be worried about being funny. The minute you start focusing on an agenda or what you would like to have happen is the minute that you can't do improv comedy. So the way you do it is really that you are listening, you're listening to every word, but you're also watching, so you're observing. So there's, I call them the five habits of improv comics, and you know I was taught at the Groundlings that these were rules, and so I've condensed them when I teach them for business people because the rules at the Groundlings also included things around purely improv comedy, like character development mm -hmm. and you know walking in a particular way and things like that. But when it comes for managers and how, in, how to use this in conversation or in an interpersonal interaction is that you, you, know, you listen and you have to listen. You have to be listening in a way that when you're listening, you're accepting everything the other party is saying. And so improv... By accepting, do you mean agreeing with? No, I don't. And that's where there's a distinction because... When you read the rules of improv comedy, or if you hear an improv comic talk about how you do it, they often talk about yes and. And yes and is a rule that every improv performer learns, and that's where you are literally taught to say or think yes and before you speak. And that makes you agree with what you've heard and add on to it, so you add more to the conversation. The problem with thinking that that's agreement is that when you're listening to the other party's words or their actions, if you just blindly agree, you may not be able to build something cohesive. So I always translate that for people, the focused listening, this attentive listening, is that you're not just listening, but that you're understanding. 
and you're accepting mm-hmm. exactly what they've given you. So you know where they are. Exactly. So that's two. What's number three? Number three is that you actually are not supposed to um, disagree with the with the person on stage. That's the improv comedy rule. That's right. right. And so what I translate that for business people is that we hate to disagree. I mean, everyone thinks like, oh, you know, certain people are conflict avoidant and certain people aren't. But the reality is everyone hates conflict. There is nobody that enjoys fighting. And the other problem with fighting is that you're not able to get to a resolution typically. People can get, especially in negotiations, right? You get ground into one side or the other. And so in improv comedy, if you do that, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You can't build a scene. Mm-hmm. So you know, the it's really very radical what you're saying. The ability to take in what someone is actually offering yeah. uh, hook line and sinker yeah. in order to uh, stay to stay with the boat metaphor in order to let the the boat keep moving is really radical because we don't do it all that often we're always interrupting the other person in our own head with uh, objections or additional uh, clarifications absolutely or I always like to say with our agenda mm-hmm. so I'm on point three, you uh, probably know, this was several years ago, Bill Urey's book, The Power of a Positive No. So I'm working for Kim. She says, you've got to work tonight um, uh, because we've got this special project, whereas it's our anniversary, my wife and I, and so forth. So, so I don't want to agree with that. I don't say mm-hmm. yes to that. But there's a way of saying, I've got a commitment. Mm-hmm. Now can we rearrange the afternoon um, so that we take some things off the table and I can zero in on this thing that you want done. So you've said yes to your own commitments and agenda. You've offered a solution to your boss, Kim, in this mm-hmm. case, that at least addresses the problem. You've heard her and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there are others in negotiation who've picked this up. Yeah. Point four is? Um, at continuing exactly what you just did. And that is this idea of adding information to really build out the conversation. And that's where I believe you can start to bring some of the agenda, if there is one, back. So you've listened, you've accepted, you've really taken that perspective, you're trying to understand Kim's goals, right? And then you can add the right information. So I understand this is really pressing, and you know, I'd like to make this happen. Can we rearrange, et cetera, et cetera? So one of the challenges that I think comes up is that when we listen to things or listen to people who we already have a built-in objection, yeah. it can feel disloyal, actually, yeah. Yeah. to even take To, to oneself, you mean? Yes, yes, or to your ancestors or to your family or mm-hmm. to the folks back home at mm-hmm. the office. That disloyalty mm-hmm. can get in the way of listening. What's your advice to people when they're struggling to listen and play better? It's extremely difficult. I think that is one of the hardest things to do, especially when you have really opposing viewpoints. You know, I mean, you can bring this back. I love to use political science in a lot of, I go, I look at that literature a lot, particularly when we have, you know, dug in entrenched political beliefs, for example. Um, what you're trying to do is really to understand what's driving that statement. And so, you know, one of the other rules to come back to an improv is that you're actually not supposed to ask questions. And that often becomes, I think, you know, antithetical to anything in negotiations where you're taught to try to probe and understand and learn. 
And I'm taking that as when, especially when you may have very different beliefs from someone, and if you start asking questions, they may feel like you, that you're putting them on the defensive. I'm mindful of the clock here. Um, The positive side of questions is it shows engagement. And so a question that says, are you out of your mind? We probably ought to take it. What makes you think that? Mm -hmm. Or what are you looking at? What else do you need is a different thing. What is item number five on the top five list? Well, the the top five, actually, I think I already said it, was, was having eye contact, which really changes for me how I think of business meetings in general. Because now, especially with technology and how we think of negotiations, you know, whether it's email or whether it's, you know, trying to do a Zoom meeting or, you know, not being in the room with somebody, you lose a lot of information and it's hard to frankly, you know, listen to somebody if you're not in the room with them. Both ways. And it's hard to be heard in the right way. Something that I might say face-to-face that's a little bit flippant, a little bit wise guy, if I'm smiling, you are too, that works. You know, on the phone, not so much in text, Mm -hmm. you know. So I I think the takeaway there, Kim, is um, be mindful when you're so constrained in the medium of the challenge of connecting personally. And you've got to be very careful not to read too much between the lines, asking other people to clarify or confirm or reframe what they said in such a way that's not quite as provocative. Any last thoughts or comments, Kim, in terms of how this applies in your leadership realm? Well, I think that everything that you've shared with us today is is really very relevant to the practice of leadership, of being able to essentially be with people, be highly present, Mm -hmm. and figure out how to invite them to tell you more. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, and the same is true in negotiation, it's not as if you have a choice. Right. I mean, if you're negotiating, there's somebody on the other side of the table or wherever they're physically situated with their own ideas of what's the proper way to maintain this. Their hands are on the wheel, too. So the notion that you can drive the interaction exactly where you want to go is just not reality land. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Lakshmi, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just for coming by today, but we've collaborated a lot in Mm -hmm. the past. I'm looking forward to keeping that going in the time ahead. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. you can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's n360.expert, and you'll find us.